Undefeated has been a very timely series. I've heard from a lot of different people who've just said, man, I needed to hear that message because I've just been living in a sense of, of defeat or my mind has been causing me problems. And hearing that message about minding your mind was so important for me. And so I'm so glad this message is hitting home. Why? Because we as Christians need to learn how to live in the victory that we've been given to be undefeated. And so we've been talking about that. In fact, our key verse reminds us, uh, 1 John 5, 4, every child of God defeats this evil world. You don't have to be a victim. As a child of God, we defeat this evil world. And we do that through, it says, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And so what we're speaking to is elements of faith that help us to, to stand in that victory already given to us in Christ Jesus. And our big idea has been this. It's time to start living out. I know you guys know this, I know it's here, but it's time to live it out, this God-given, Christ-enabled, Spirit-empowered, victorious life. And if you have missed any of the messages up to this point, they're all available online or in your bulletin. There's a little uh, announcement there about how to use uh, the, the Bible app. We are partnering with ShareFaith to make available to you a church app where our message notes are. You can also listen to our messages on that church app. And so I'd encourage you to take a look at that and explore that with us. We've talked about a lot of things I don't have time to really get into today, but a really important message is about living in victory. But throughout Scripture, we can see that Christians are and will be engaged in spiritual warfare. And in fact, we're warned oftentimes in Scripture against underestimating our enemy. And Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says to be alert and of sober mind. Now, he's not talking about drunkenness here. What he's talking about is have your wits about you. Use all your faculties. This is a real issue. Don't, don't be swayed away by what is not true. This is a reality. He says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. So there is an option, okay? We're going to talk more about how we do that here in today's message. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, even worse than underestimating our enemy would be uh, not even realizing that a war is going on. There are Christians who live as though there's not, there's not a, a conflict going on. In fact, there are some Christians, uh, some liberal Christians who don't even believe in the devil. They don't even believe in hell. They don't believe in this great kind of cosmic warfare that's been happening since Satan said, God, I want to sit in your chair. And ever since that point, there's been a great conflict that we as Christians are also involved in. So we don't want to underestimate it. Let me put it this way. Uh, this past week, once again, uh, as a nation and actually as a world, we remembered an event that happened June 6, 1944. Some of you might know what that event was. Some of you might have had some family involved in that event. I had a great-grandfather grand, grand, grand involved in this event. Um, it was called D-Day. And it was when the largest military assault was placed together. And in fact, listen just to these numbers. The Allied invasion it was, included 3 million men, 13,000 aircraft, 1,200 warships, 2,700 merchant ships, and 2,500 landing craft. I mean, this was a large scale, probably the biggest, in fact, the biggest military option in the history of warfare. And just before they were to assault Normandy and get onto the beaches to get their access in, 
General Eisenhower issued what's now a famous letter that was titled to the soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces. This is what he writes. He says, you're about to embark upon the greatest crusade to bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. And his point of writing this was, one, to instill some confidence. This is a vast strategic military effort we are doing together, and we want to instill some confidence in you. But also in this letter, he didn't want them just to think about the confidence that we have as an allied force. He also wanted to speak to the reality of what they would face. And so he goes on in the letter to say this, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. Why did General Eisenhower want to do that? Because he didn't want the soldiers coming off of those, of those landing ships thinking it was a cakewalk. Because if they had felt like it was certain victory and all they had to do was just step into it, when those gates opened, which it was already gruesome enough when those gates opened, and the sitting ducks of those trying to come out of the landing craft were trying to make their way out, it was already pretty fierce anyway. But imagine if they didn't think it was that big of a deal. If there weren't real bullets. His point was, we're not going to bring a beach ball, a beach chair, and a rubber ducky to this event. It is a real issue. And the reason I'm using this illustration is, one, because it just happened in our history this past week, right? We, we, we remembered that event. But also, secondly, is because of this. Oftentimes, Christians don't pay attention to the reality of what is going on around them when it comes to spiritual warfare. So my point isn't to draw an unhealthy amount of attention to it, but I think we need to look at this because there are believers out there in Christ who don't take this very seriously and because of it, I believe, are very vulnerable to what happens in their lives spiritually. So when we understand that we're in this battle, our first thought ought to be, okay, well, how do I keep from becoming a casualty on this battlefield? And and Paul gives us some advice, some God-birthed advice in Ephesians. We're going to look at it. He says, you need to armor up. You need to armor up is what he basically says. Because sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. It's a battleground, not a playground. Yes, we can have fun as Christians. There are fun things that we can do. But the reality is there's also a a real battle that we face as followers of Jesus. But here's the truth that we have to set as the peace to build upon as we talk about this. Because I don't want you leaving here feeling like you have to tuck your tail between your legs and run away, all right? Because here's the thing. The victory has already been won by God in Christ, okay? So we, when, we stop, when we talk about spiritual warfare, a key piece for you to wrap your head and heart around is this truth. The victory has already been won, all right? That's why Paul can say, stand, stand firm. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. The outcome of the war has already been determined. In fact, the cross established it when Jesus said it is finished. And Paul picks up in Colossians and says this in Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this act in history has been done. Jesus came and dealt the death blow to sin, to death, to the devil at the cross. So the war is won. That's why, friends, we can stand. And here's the thing you need to understand. As believers, we do not fight for victory. 
although that sounds really appealing, hear me out, we fight from victory. And that makes all the difference in the world when you face spiritual warfare. I'm not doing this to get the victory. I mean, I hear Christians say, I just need you to pray that I get the victory over this. No, I'm not fighting for victory because that's been established. My position, my context is the battle's already been won. So I fight from victory. And that makes all the difference in the world. Why? Because I have a confidence now that I can stand in my Savior, my victor, Christ, and I can stand upon the truth, what the Word tells me about what he did at the cross to neutralize the power of the enemy, and then I can work from and find victory from that position. So we fight from victory. But even though that battle rages on, you feel it sometimes day to day, here's the thing, the victory is secure. But while that victory is secure, Paul warns us that we must know where our strength comes from. It's not from here, okay? Where does our strength come from and how we can stand upon that strength? So grab your Bibles if you haven't yet and go to Ephesians chapter 6 or your smart device or whatever you use to interact with Scripture. Because in Ephesians 6, Paul gives us a look at what we need to be mindful of, what we need to put upon ourselves daily to stand from this position of victory. Because the victory is ours, the equipment is available, are we standing in it? Okay, and that's the question, or not the question, but that's the issue that he addresses at the close of his letter. Ephesians chapter 6, it begins at verse 10. Look at what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The command to be strong in the Lord presumes a couple of things. One, it presumes that God is eager and willing to provide you with strength. Okay, we're strong in the Lord. In fact, Paul, I don't have this in your notes for you, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I think that's an interesting way to put it. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What he's basically saying is, Timothy, here's the issue. We all have weaknesses. There are things that we cannot do, and that's where the grace of Christ steps in. And so I need you to stand strong in the grace that means the, the ability, the enablement that God gives us at our salvation to stand in Christ Jesus. And so we stand not in our own strength. Christians who think they're strong enough to face the enemy are going to be like the seven sons of Sceva. If you haven't ever heard the story, you got to read it. Paul references these, these, these sons who uh, saw Paul rebuke demons, and so they thought they could do the same thing. In the name of the God that Paul talks about, I rebuke you. And guess what happened to those seven sons of Sceva? They were beaten up by this demon-possessed man because they thought they could do this with their own wit or their own know-how, and they didn't know the victory upon which Paul stood when he was confronted with enemies. It also assumes that our empowering isn't necessarily automatic. We need to stay in relationship with Christ. We need to stay close to him. It is strong where? not around the Lord, in Him. In Him. Being in Him means I'm having a relationship that's developing and growing. It's not stagnant. It wasn't, well, back in 1965, I gave my life to Christ, and ever since then, I've been just doing my own thing. No, it's in Him. And that in Him is a relationship that needs to be nurtured daily. That I'm within that place, that context of being within Christ. And this command also assumes something, that we're going to need the strength. This, again, addresses the reality of the end of the enemy of our souls that wants to destroy the church, that wants to destroy the Christians, that wants to destroy the gospel of Christ. 
that we're going to need this strength. So, some things to understand. One, the task of the believer is not to win, but to stand. We, I know we, we talk about fighting from victory, but here's something else we're going to see Paul establish here in just a moment. The task of the believer is not to win, but to stand. Why is it not to win? We'll get there in a minute because, well, that's already been done, right? But I want you to notice how many times the word stand is referenced in these next verses. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 11 and going on to 13, listen, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And I think this is an important point to make. And I want to just pause here for a little side note. Forgive the tangent for a minute, but just hear me out. Sometimes in life, we're in conflict with real people, what we would call flesh and blood, people at work, people in our family, and, and it's irritating, and it's frustrating, and we want to lash out at them. And one of the things I want to challenge you with when you are dealing with human-level conflict is I want you just to hit the pause button and think for a moment what scheme is really at work here, okay? That doesn't mean you look at your husband and say, you're the devil. Okay, that just, that's not what it means. But it just means for a second, stop. When you have human-level conflict, which usually comes about because of sin or selfishness or ambition or whatever else, and we begin to butt heads with people, something that will help you to desire to not retaliate but to respond will be to stop and go, let's think about the scheme that is really going on here. The enemy wants to sow dissension. The enemy wants to sow fighting and backbiting and, 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 and this anxiety about this relationship. So I need to guard myself as I'm dealing with this human level because I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, when you're on Facebook with people who have different views than you, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Okay, and when you try to approach it that way, that's when Christians get called haters and all those other things because we can sometimes say really stupidly angry stuff at people that is not gospelish at all. You didn't even know gospelish was a word, but I just made it a word. Um, and so we have to be remembered. It's not about the people. God loves them. He wants to see them redeemed. It's not against flesh and blood. So pause and think, what is going on here? What do I need to pray about in my own life? What attitude am I bringing to this conflict? Or what is going on in the heavenlies that I need to pray about before I address this issue socially or before I confront my person in my life? That I'm So that's a little side note. Yours for free. All right. He says, so it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Now, notice the stockpiling he does to paint a picture about the reality of the enemy. He's not trying to highlight him to make us be afraid, but look at what he does. He wants us to understand there is a reality here against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Does this sound like something that's just fanciful, mythical, made up? No, because Paul knows what this is about because he's dealt with it during his ministry. He says, friends, do not underestimate the fact that this is a real authority. It's a real power. But our job isn't to win. Aren't you glad that these authorities, these powers, these rulers have already been defeated? They're real, but they've been defeated. But here's the point. Why isn't it our task to, to win but just to stand? Because one, the victory's already been won by Christ. I can't double win it. I mean, it's been done. I can't overdo Christ. That's been established. 
The task of the believers is not to win, but to stand. And to stand simply means to, to connect that strength, that stability, that success that we face in conflict to what's already happened. It's a context from which we apply ourselves. I'm just going to stand because God already has given us the victory. But here's the other thing. We are not called as Christians to go looking for trouble. I know there's a certain kind of charismatic movement out there that wants to go assault the enemy, uh, like there's some kind of special ops from heaven, and we're going to go assault the enemy, um, and, and we're going to call out demons, and we're going to confront them. Can I just remind you that Jesus didn't really do that when he came to this world? He came to seek and save the lost, and while he was on mission seeking and saving the lost, yes, he dealt with the enemy several times. He dealt with the enemy through personal attack and temptation in the wilderness. He dealt with the enemy through demon-possessed people, through people that wanted to kill him, okay? So he dealt with it, but you know what he did? He just dealt with it and put it in its place. He didn't entertain it. He didn't go, I'm going to go find the devil and I'm going to beat him up. But that's not what he did. He knew where the victory already was. He was going to go to the cross and establish that victory. Who knew who he was? He knew he was the son of the creator of the universe, right? He knows who he is. He didn't go looking for trouble, but he put it in its place when it came up. As Christians, we're not going to go around looking for trouble. Why? Because some of us have a hard enough time just standing, okay? So let's just get that one figured out. And then once we got that one figured out, maybe let the Lord lead you into something else. But we don't go looking for trouble. It's going to find you all by itself. That's why most of us have just a hard time standing. So what does he do? He says, to stand, you got to do something. There's a real issue out there, but you got to put on the full armor. And I love the idea that, that Paul uses something that's very real worldly for him. Because when Paul was writing this, guess where he was? He wasn't in the Hilton. He wasn't in the Bahamas somewhere writing a nice letter in the luxury of vacation. You know where he was? He was imprisoned. He was chained to a Roman centurion. And every day he would have a new partner right next to him that he was chained to. And so he knew exactly what a Roman soldier looked like because he was surrounded by them all the time. And as he's sitting there talking to the church at Ephesus, as he's dictating this letter, he sees this soldier and he's like, God inspired him to write about this armor that Christians are to make sure that they put on the full armor of God. In fact, this call to put on is a call for believers to put to use what they already possess. Let me say this again. This is a call to put to use what you already possess. It's not like a, a Christian scavenger hunt where I got to go find the sword of the spirit that's hidden over here in some gospel truth, and I got to go find the helmet of salvation over here somewhere, and, and maybe at the flea market find the, the shoes of the gospel of peace. It's not like that. When we are saved, Paul says that we are clothed in Christ upon our salvation. So the armor of God is, is here. It's within our possession. But how many know that possession is not the same as application? Possession is not the same as application. You've got it. You don't often use it. Let me give you an example from real life. We just moved. My family and I moved to, to Millersburg. And um, when we were packing up the old house, um, I was working in the garage, packing stuff up. And I opened this cabinet, and I find this thing that I didn't know we had. And had I known we'd had that, it would have changed the way I did stuff for the years that we lived there. Because right above this cabinet that I never opened and looked into, right above it was a handsaw. 
You guys know what a handsaw is? It's a saw you use your hand with to cut. Now, I didn't have to do a lot of construction, but I had to cut a few things when I lived at this house. So I'd lay down a two-by-four, and I would... <clears throat> How many remember doing this? Maybe some of you still have one of those. And I was... <clears throat> and then finally I'd cut whatever it was I was cutting. But I did not look forward to cutting things because I had a handsaw. When we moved and I began to unpack this cabinet right beneath where the handsaw is stationed, I found a skill saw. A skill saw. You guys know what a skill saw is? It's a power saw. There's no this. It's just you push a button and cut things up. And if I knew I'd had one of those, I would have been cutting a lot more things up. I'd be finding things to cut up because I'd have this this really cool tool. Well, apparently, Trisha bought a skill saw and, uh, for her arts and crafts. I don't know what kind of craft requires a skill saw, but she bought it, and it was down there, and I totally forgot we'd had it because possession does not equal application. Friends, and this is the point Paul's trying to make. You've got this. You're clothed in Christ. In fact, he opens up Ephesians chapter 1 talking about the mighty power of Christ. We already have it as Christians. But application is everything. So we're going to briefly review here the, the armor as he lists it out in Ephesians chapter 6. And what you're going to discover basically is that these armor pieces are just aspects of the gospel. That he says you've got to make sure you're applying in your life. We possess the gospel but is it, is it being applied in the way you live out your life, in the way you face conflict? Is it being applied? Because you look at things, it's going to be like truth. That sounds pretty gospelish. See, there's my word again. Or it's, it's, it's righteousness or all these things. It's like, that's a gospel message. But he's giving some practical handles of how to face conflict, spiritual warfare with the gospel and what it can look like when we understand that. And here's the thing. Where the gospel has strengthened you, Satan cannot subdue you. Where the gospel has strengthened you, Satan cannot subdue you. Why? Because the gospel is the word of God. And guess what the enemy cannot subdue? The living, active word, the authority that comes from God. Now, he will try. And I might have to say for some of us, he cannot easily subdue you. Because some of you, you know, you know this stuff, but you still are vulnerable and you still give in. But if we can strengthen these issues in our own life, we are less vulnerable to the attack and the work of the enemy who hits us where we're weak. All right, so here we go. The belt of truth. Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So the belt. The belt goes around the, the, your core. And in the picture here, you can kind of see a full-blown, uh, the whole suit that a that a soldier would wear. You didn't know they had cameras back in the, in the day, uh, but they captured this one. It was on a cave wall somewhere. No, just kidding. This is just a reenactment of the, of the Roman guard, and this is the full armor that a soldier would wear as he goes into battle. What you'll see is the belt that's kind of right there in the middle, the little dangly things coming down. Um, that belt would go around the soldier, and it would actually hold everything in place. It was a critical piece. Um, it would be the thing that would make everything else work, okay? 
Why is that important? Because truth has got to be the starting point of anything we are talking about when it comes to the armor of God or defeating the enemy. Truth is the issue. And, he, and, and Paul says to gird your loins with truth. Uh, that's kind of a weird word. Let me just unpack it because we don't talk about girding our loins today. All right? But his whole point was, if you, and, and what I love about the illustration here is he's like, if you're going to go into battle, make sure you got your belt on so you're not going with your pants down. I mean, that's kind of the whole point he's trying to make. You're not going to be vulnerable. All right? Because this holds it all together. Now, here's the deal. When a, a, a Roman centurion, underneath all that, you see the red tunic that he wears. That red tunic is a very flowing, it's a square, actually rectangular piece of material that just hangs over their body. And so they don't look as cool if they don't have all this stuff on because they look kind of like a, a red rectangle uh, because that tunic is free-flowing. And when people would prepare to run or to do anything wearing tunics, because tunics were very commonly worn. Jesus wore a tunic. The apostle Peter wore a tunic. That's, in fact, it, it talks about how he took that off to swim to the shore to be with Jesus. But in the story of the prodigal son, we, we hear a story about a father who ran to his son, right? When people would run, you've heard me say this before, they would take their tunic and they would tuck it into their belt. And it would look like a, just a, like a big diaper, all right, just to give you the, the, the picture. But that would give them mobility and a freedom to move. Because if that fabric was in the way, and I don't know what it's like to wear a dress because, frankly, I haven't done that. But ladies, if you've ever had a dress that's been in the way, you, you know that that's problematic for doing certain things. And so to gird one's loin meant to prepare for action. And the best way to prepare is to, truth, right? But when it comes to a soldier, here's something else to think about. How well would he fight Without his armor, if all he had was this tunic on, how would that trip him up? How would that tangle him up? And here's the thing. One of the most effective weapons of the enemy is lies. Okay? How many have been tangled by a lie before? Or tripped up by a lie before? That you let into your life or that you believed and it totally messed with you. It tangled you up. It tripped you up. And Paul's whole point was we've got to gird our loins with truth one, because the enemy's main tactic is lying. He's the father of lies, so when he speaks, he's lying. And secondly, this thing will help surround me. So the question is, how are you surrounding yourself with truth? Where are you, where are you learning or, or standing upon truth? Where, what areas of your life are you allowing lies to take place rather than truth? And here's the thing about truth. It's not static. I love this idea of the belt of truth because here's, here's what Paul's basically saying. In John chapter 14, Jesus says something. He says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, here's the thing. Truth isn't static. It's a person. It's Jesus. And this whole idea is Jesus is with us and we surround or we wrap ourselves or we clothe ourselves with Christ. And that's an, a primary issue he's thinking, but he also wants us to understand that this truth should influence the way we think about things. So it should influence how I think about life, purpose, how I think about priorities, how I think about when I hear the enemy lie to me, what I think about with that. And, and that needs to be truth. And that also means we need to be honest with ourselves and honest before God. Because how many times have we looked at the fact that our failure was right here. And I love what David says, Lord, search me. Search me. I want to know truth in my innermost being. And that's what my prayer needs to be and your prayer needs to be. God, help me see where the vulnerabilities already are, where I am allowing falsehood 
in my life or deception to be at work in my life? How are you surrounding yourself with truth? Because here's the thing. Where truth is absent, attack is imminent. Where truth is absent, attack is imminent. And a lot of Christians... um, I'll call them recreational Christians. A lot of recreational Christians just don't know truth. They may like Jesus. In fact, they may even say they're a follower of Jesus. But if you don't know stuff, you don't know the truth, then how are you going to have your life buckled with it? Right? There's no room for recreational Christians. We are standing firm with the belt of truth because the assault of the enemy is lies. And he always takes lies, uses the word of God, twists it, In fact, he does that with Jesus. We'll talk more about it a little bit later. So truth. The second one he talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 6.14. With the breastplate of righteousness. And I like what he says. In the NIV translation, it says, in place. With the breastplate of righteousness, in place. Why would he go the detail just to say that. I mean, wouldn't it be obvious? It's a breastplate of righteousness. You know, you wear it over your chest. No, he's saying you got to have it in the right place. Your righteousness, friends, is not based on anything you do. Okay? The righteousness in place means understanding where our righteousness comes from. Now, a breastplate is a very important uh, armor piece for a soldier because it protects all the vital organs. Um, as a chaplain with law, uh, with the law enforcement here in Lynn County Sheriff's Office, I wear a vest, a ballistics vest, under my chaplain's uniform when I'm out with officers. Because we are, they want to make sure everybody's safe. And this is where everything is vulnerable. That's where danger can come. Why is righteousness like a breastplate? Here's why. Because the second most powerful tactic of the enemy is condemnation. You've heard the condemning thoughts before. When the enemy lied to you and said, you're a loser, you're a sinner, God hates you, you're not worth anything, the condemnation that we feel and that we hear, we begin to believe. But what if we instead chose to believe the position that we are in, in Christ? In fact, uh, I don't have it on the screens for you, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us this, God made him who had no sin, this would be Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this, we have to understand where our place is in righteousness. It's not on our own doings, not by works of righteousness that I have done, but it's in Christ. And when I recognize who I am in him, and that he died for me even when I was a sinner, then I can have the confidence to face condemnation and say, no, That's not how God views me. When God views me, he sees righteousness because of his son. And I'm standing under the righteousness of Christ. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn this, but I'm standing in this righteousness. And that condemnation cannot have the effect on you, on the vital part of your life that you begin to believe because we are made right before God through Christ Jesus. It is a breastplate of righteousness. And once I know how to stand in that righteousness, then the next thing for me to do is live like I am, right? I think he wants his righteousness that we're standing in to bleed out through our life. And so that means there are areas I got to bring into obedience. I got to bring into confirmation of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Some of us, we still like to do stuff out here. And when we step out here, righteousness is over here, we're now stepping into a very vulnerable territory. And the enemy knows those weaknesses. 
In fact, how many know that true soldiers look for weak spots in a person's armor? Boxers do the same thing, right? They're trained to watch for areas that their opponent becomes vulnerable in. Why? Because the more you hit there, the more you attack there, the more pain it causes, the more they drop their guard in other areas because they're now protecting that area and they're open for absolute assault. So this is why we need to make sure not only do I understand the righteousness that I'm in and there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but then secondarily I need to live within that righteousness. I need to let it bleed out in the way that I live, that he wants me to become more like Christ. Because he's made me righteous. We also see another piece of armor. Feet fitted with the gospel of peace, readiness, I call it, in the notes. But basically, it's gospel shoes. Look at what it says, Ephesians 6.15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I've often heard it said that the sword of spirit is the only offensive weapon that we have. Uh, or maybe, maybe prayer. But I, I want to challenge your thinking for a minute on this issue of the shoes, because I believe that your feet can be offensive. I mean, okay, let me just back up. Yes, your feet can be offensive. My kids' feet sometimes can be very offensive, especially when they take their shoes off in the car. But um, that's not the point I'm trying to make. The, the point here being these shoes have a purpose. Now, Roman soldier shoes, which these don't necessarily show it, but oftentimes beneath that sole of their sandal there would be um, spikes, kind of like, think about cleats, like football cleats or track or whatever, right? There'd be spikes that help them to stand their ground. Why is this important when we think about the gospel of peace and we think about the shoes being fitted with the gospel of peace? Here's why. Because there is something God has called us to do, to step into. Yeah, we're to stand against the, the, the work of the enemy. There, there is something he has called us to do. When it comes to invading darkness, when it comes to advancing his kingdom, there is something we are to do. Do you know what it is? It is to share the gospel. It is to advance the gospel of Christ Jesus. And how many know that in this world, we, we know that has to happen. There has to be an advancing of that gospel in our culture. Because our culture wants to offer a pretty slippery uh, foundation to live our lives on. But the gospel gives us a place to sink our feet into. The truth. But also, soldiers would wear, would wear cleats or spikes on their shoes, one, to get a good standing, because your posture and your standing and fighting is all the difference in the world. But secondarily, let me just get gross with you for a second. In the heat of battle where blood was everywhere, if a soldier didn't have cleats, he couldn't stand on the slippery surface of all the bodily fluids around him. So the cleats would help him stand among the carnage and gain traction. Friends, how many know we're surrounded by a bunch of carnage and we need the truth of the gospel to give us a foundation to stand upon? In fact, Paul was, uh, actually Peter, uh, said these words in uh, 1 Peter 5.12. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of, of, of God. So he's talking about the gospel. And so he says, stand fast in it. This is what we build our foundation upon. This is what we build our life upon. But the other reason that the gospel fitted with the, or their feet being fit with the gospel of peace is an issue is because there's something else I've discovered about Christians. If we're not advancing mission, if we're idle, we're vulnerable. Let me explain it this way. Idle Christians are open to the devil's playground. 
because you're not doing anything. But when I'm on mission, when I'm focused on serving him, my intention's on him, my focus is on him, I'm standing in him, I want to make sure I'm honoring him in the way that I live. If you don't have something to do, which we all do as Christians to advance the gospel, then we're, in, we're going to end up being idle. And boredom is a bad place to be because the enemy wants to use that. So one, it's great because we can spread the gospel to our friends who need to hear it. But two, it's great for us because it keeps us active and busy about his mission. And if Christians aren't busy about the mission of Christ, they're idle. And idle Christians are vulnerable. So we want to make sure we're advancing with our feet fitted properly with the gospel of peace. And then he says that we are to have the shield of faith, Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, as I've already said, Satan's main weapons are the lies that he throws, like fiery darts. And you're not supposed to um, stop those with your own wit and your own human reasoning. You're not supposed to try to catch him and throw him back at him, all right? The whole point here is, Paul's saying, you have a shield of faith, and the shields used by the Roman guards were about the size that you see here. They're, very, they're pretty tall. They're not like little Captain America shields. They're, they're a big shield. And oftentimes, the shield would be wrapped on the outer surface. And of course, there's that iron area to help as well. But this would be made of hide that was soaked in water. So it was leather-soaked shields. And the reason that was important is when the enemy would use fiery arrows, which they did often in warfare because most of their equipment was wooden and, and it would burn. And, of course, no one likes flame. And the kind of product they would use, the pitch they would use, would cast that fire everywhere. And it would sting you and burn you. And it was horrific. So they'd have these shields. And when the fiery dart would hit the shield or stick upon the shield, the, the fire couldn't advance because the shield was wet. Right? So the shield of Faith is the word that he uses, and that means we have to understand one, one thing, understand what we believe about God. Again, it kind of comes back to what we know to be true, what we stand upon. Here's why. Because the enemy's darts that he hurls, hurls at you sound something like this. You're no good. You're nothing. You're pathetic. After what you did, you think God still loves you? You can never make a difference in this world. He'll, he'll never use you. Your marriage will always be bad. You'll never be a good parent. You'll always be sick. You'll never get out of debt. And on and on he goes with these fiery darts that are bombarded at you that we begin to let take place in our life unless we stand with the shield of faith, which means, no, 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 no. That's not what I believe. That's not where my faith lies. In fact, you're, you put your shield up, and it's something like this. Well, I'm pretty sure God says about me that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'm pretty sure that God says I'm blessed in my coming in and I'm blessed in my going out. I'm pretty sure that God says greater is he that is within me than he that's in this world. I'm pretty sure God says that nothing can separate me from his love. And we begin to use that scripture. And if you don't know what scripture to use, again, you've got to kind of go back to the tools you've already been given. The sword of the spirit, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But there are resources in your Bible that will help you find verses to stand upon to build your faith to use against the enemy to strengthen your, your shield of faith when those lies and those things come. Here's something else I've discovered about this. The Romans were great at um, linking their shields together to create a, a stronger barrier and a protective barrier, especially when they would go in to retrieve a fallen soldier. They would go in with this kind of turtle-looking uh, 
kind of uh, formation where their shields were over them and in front of them and around them, and they would retrieve their vulnerable soldier back to the safe lines. Why would they link their shields to create that safe barrier? How many know that sometimes you just need somebody else in your life and their shield of faith linking with you to help you through stuff? That's why, I mean, I don't mind sitting in rows and having conversations about God, but you need to be sitting in some circles with some other people and linking arms in faith and letting people speak into your life encouragement that boosts your faith. So when those assaults come, you hold that shield up high and say, no, God tells me this. I'm reminded about this. And then he says you need to put on the helmet of salvation. 617, take the helmet of salvation. Again, this kind of repeats what we've been talking about already and certainly last week's message about minding your mind because this is where our thoughts come from, right? And the enemy wants to allow you to question your salvation. He wants you to deny that maybe you're saved. He wants you to begin to believe lies about stuff. And so he attacks in the area of your reasoning and your thinking. And we talked about that last week. So if you weren't here, mind your mind was last week's message and it's all available online. But uh, we need to be able to go back to the truth that we know about our salvation in Christ Jesus and allow our minds to be transformed, as Paul talks about in Romans. And I don't want to take time today to do that. You can go back and listen to last week's message. And then he says the sword of the Spirit, verse 17, the other half, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this is definitely an offensive weapon. Shields are, or swords aren't very much often used just for defense. They are used for offense. And I loved the way Jesus used it when he was being tempted by the enemy. You remember what happened, right? He was in the wilderness. He'd fasted for 40 days. And when he was vulnerable, the enemy began to tempt him. And he would say things like, you're the son of God. If you are, turn these stones into bread. And what did Jesus do? Did he use philosophy or a joke or something to come back at the enemy with? No. What did he use? It is written. It is written. What was Jesus doing? Claiming and standing upon the word. His word, of course, but on the word. And he would use that against the enemy. And so when the enemy bombards you with things, the good news about the sword of the Spirit is we have an ability to step forward with truth. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and slice away the arguments and lies of the enemy. Remember, we talked about it last week. We demolish these arguments um, that he sets up against us. It's our weapon of offense. But the thing is, not many of us know the word. I bring it back to what David said. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The whole idea is, if I have issues in my life that are vulnerabilities, and there's a scripture that goes with that, why am I not memorizing that? Why am I not recalling that? Because the Holy Spirit's going to be good to bring things to your remembrance that you have learned. And you can stand, even if you can't quote it verbatim, you can say, I know in the Bible it says, okay? And stand upon that. That's your, that's your sword. And then he goes on to say this, pray in the spirit, which I think should be like the javelin. I mean, if I was there with Paul in the prison, I'd say, hey, Paul, what about this idea for prayer? Let's, let's call it the javelin. Uh, but he didn't do that. For whatever reason, he just kind of summarized it all by saying this in verse um, 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. After you put all this armor on, you have this weapon, he says, oh, but don't forget this important piece. You got to pray. What does prayer do? It sets our minds on Christ or the things above in the good times and the bad times, but it also lets God do the work only he can do, and we pray. 
and we pray in the Spirit, he says, and keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. I believe that prayer is another weapon of offense that we bombard the enemy with as we pray. We pray for our loved ones. We pray for our unsaved friends. We begin to prepare the way for advancing the gospel of peace through prayer. And he says to pray in the Spirit. I love the way Paul talks about it in Corinthians. He says the man who prays in the Spirit, what's he do? He's building himself up. And how many know that we need that? We do. And so that's what he's talking about. So let me wrap it up here. Paul's instruction on the armor of God basically says this. There is a war, and you're in it. If you're a child of God, it's inevitable. You will face this conflict, and this battle is real. Don't be naive. Don't think in your own strength, in your own wit, you're going to overcome the power of the enemy because you can't. So what do we do? We stand, and we fight from our position of victory in the armor that God has given us. In fact, the prophet Isaiah talks about God wearing this armor. It's almost like that time when Saul tried to give David his armor as he was going to face Goliath, and David chose not to because he was was kind of a show-off, and because the armor was too big. But for us, this armor is well-fitting, and it's God's armor, and he gives it to us. So we have all the resource we need to stand when the enemy assaults us. Living undefeated then means this. It means covering your life with the armor of God. Covering your life with the armor of God. The way to fight Satan is not to focus on Satan. Okay? It's to cover your life with the gospel. And that's what we talked about. Truth, righteousness, peace. This is gospel stuff. And we clothe ourselves with the nature of Christ. We put on the full armor of God. And here's a great way to do it. I, don't, I was going to give you the resource today, but I, I didn't have time to grab it. But if you Google Charles Stanley and the armor of God, he, does, he, he wrote a prayer that he prays that keeps him mindful about the armor of God. I don't believe as Christians we need to put it on every day because I think it should be on us. Okay? It's like something we are given but it reinforces the reality that it's here. And so he kind of does a prayer about each element of the armor of God. And it kind of just puts you in a right frame of mind. So Charles Stanley, the armor of God prayer, hopefully you can find it. If not, let me know and I'll shoot you the link because I found it. Um, And I'd love to share it with you, but I just totally forgot to put it in the notes today. But let me pray with you. In fact, let's stand this morning because we're told to stand firm. I want want you to stand. I believe in this room today there are people who are in the thick of it. You're in the thick of it. And maybe it looks like marital problems. Maybe it looks like financial problems. Maybe it looks like an addiction or it looks like a sickness or an illness. And you're in the thick of it. And and the enemy is playing tricks with you. Because he does have schemes that are real. Paul says we armor up to stand against the wiles, or the schemes of the enemy. But some of you, it's, it's been real for you. You've been in the thick of it. And let me just challenge you as we pray that you get intentional about this. Possession does not equal application. You have got to apply this to your own life. Through truth, through knowing who you are in Christ and the righteousness he has for you through, the, through uh, the sword of the Spirit, learning the Word and standing upon that. Those are things you've got to do. It takes application. But here's the good news. The Holy Spirit within you is going to help you. But let me pray with you. Father, today I know in this room there are people who have just been beaten up. 
And all the while, we've had this great resource that we've just not given thought to. Because we didn't take seriously the battle we're in or where we thought it was about a person and not not about a spiritual thing. So God, I just pray that right now each of us would just recognize maybe areas where we're vulnerable, where we're not protected. Maybe we just don't have a good grasp on the truth because we're not diligent enough to study. We're not in the word like we should be daily. We're not beginning our our days with a focus and a mindset of prayer and and in your word. And so we don't know. And we're vulnerable. For others, Lord, if they were to think about a a year later, they know what, what right now would be their undoing if they let the enemy have victory. I pray they would look at that issue right now and address it and bring it under the forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. And we would get intentional about applying these truths to the realities of life. Because to be undefeated, that means that we are going to be covered by your armor. So Lord, help us to not grow lazy, to not grow weary, because we stand from a position of victory. And you have told us through Paul that we are to stand firm then in the full armor of of God. I just pray that over all of us in the name of Jesus. As we go into this week and whatever it brings, Lord, remember, help us to remember we can stand because you have given us all we need to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.